Welcome to Don't Waste a Good Recession, presentation nine, the 15th of May, 2020. Remember to like, subscribe, leave a review or leave a comment. We're about to enter a new phase of lockdown. We're about to enter a new phase in terms of this recession and your business. And that means that at Don't Waste a Good Recession, we're about to enter a new phase, giving you more and more practical material that you can apply in your business as we go through the planning phase that's going to take you from here the transformed business you will have on the other side of the coronavirus recession. I'm really excited about this week's conversation. I'm going to turn you into a freaking genius. We're going to dive into how a typical recession progresses, the sequence of events of dominoes that cause a recession within the broader economy. That's then going to allow us to look at how the coronavirus recession is different to give you some insight as to what's happening right now and what's happening in the future. And then we're going to end on what that actually means for your small and medium-sized business. Buckle in and let's start, as always, by making sure that you're present, that you're focused, and that you're ready to take that information and maximise the value of applying it in your organisation. That means...
this week there is a fair amount of information that I want to share with you. It's mum and dad level economics. We're not going to get into all of the specifics and the nitty gritty. It's a topic that really excites me. I hope you find it exciting and valuable as well. Please do stick around and provide your feedback, whether that's questions, comments, or observations. Of course, before we jump into how a typical recession progresses, we need to have a look at how this one is progressing with this week's economic snapshot. So here's the economic snapshot for this week. We actually have uh, a lot of new information starting to come through at that lag, that following indicator level. But we'll start as always with the active coronavirus cases. Similar colour scheme to the last few weeks. In Australia, the number of active cases continues to decline. Globally, the number of active cases is increasing. However, it's worth knowing that in the UK, the US and globally, those figures are slowing. The number of active cases is going up. It's not going up as fast. Hopefully that means that it will start going down very soon. COVID-19 has now killed more people than the 2003 Boxing Day tsunami. I remember that as a personal milestone. That was a phenomenal natural disaster that resonated in my mind. And we have now surpassed that in terms of the death toll. And that's the known death toll. Uh, we dive into the numbers a little bit more. We actually see also that the death toll is slowing. In other words, the first month of recording this information and sharing it with you, there was a fairly clear progression between the number of new cases and the number of deaths. New cases would go up by 100%, 200% in a week. Then we would see about two weeks later, the number of deaths would go up by 100, 200%. What we're starting to see in the last few weeks is that even though the number of active cases is increasing, in the last few weeks, it's been in the order of 20, 25% across some of those countries, the actual deaths that are following a few weeks later are only going up by about half of that. Now that suggests to me that we are managing to flatten the curve. Our healthcare systems are not as overwhelmed as we feared, so we're able to provide better healthcare. And perhaps we're also learning a little bit about how better to treat people who have contracted this. Of course, at the same time, we're learning more about potential follow-on diseases. And I know as the father myself, uh, I'm keeping a close eye on uh, this potential variant that's kicking in that's affecting children uh, that may be related to contracting COVID-19, even though the actual main coronavirus disease seems to be uh, affecting and, and killing children, thankfully, far, far less than, say, a seasonal influenza. The markets were all down for the second week in a row. Again, though, they're very, very flat. From next week, we're going to actually break this whole snapshot into its own TV show. So uh, we're going to start separating out, as I flagged, heading into a new phase of the recession. So we're going to do some things differently here at Don't Waste a Good Recession. Uh, and that means, uh, you know, providing a little bit more meat and, and uh, some information in this snapshot, setting it as a standalone program, uh, which means we'll start showing some graphs. You'll actually be able to see the volume of some of those movements at the trend lines. So the market's down, um, not an enormous amount, fairly flat again. 
big bits of data that we have come out this week uh, since the last presentation, both the US and Australia have delivered unemployment numbers for April of 2020. Uh, you might recall from March's numbers that that's not the end of April. Uh, the US goes to about mid-April, Australia a little bit later. Uh, the numbers get released a little bit later. So in the US, unemployment is up 11.2% from March to a total of 14.7% unemployment, which is uh, an enormous number. It was actually less than was expected. Uh, however, that far exceeds any of the unemployment levels reached during the Great Recession. In Australia, unemployment up to 6.2%. That's an increase of 1.1% month on month. Uh, the March figures in Australia included a little bit more of the early stage of the lockdown than the US. That's why, partly why our jump has not been as high. That may look very much like the lucky country conversation we've been having around Australia, that Australia is not being affected nearly as much as the US. I would urge some level of caution against that. You've got to understand where these numbers come from. And remember that all of the numbers I'm sharing with you here are horseshit. That's exactly the word that we've been using. They're all made up in their own way, and we just hope that they're the best that we can do, and they're all incorrect in the right direction. So diving into the Australian unemployment numbers. So it doesn't look too bad. Unemployment only up to 6.2%, certainly compared to 147 However, the Australian government has implemented some changes to the stimulus welfare packages that are going on. So if we jump a little bit deeper, we see that the participation rate of the Australian economy fell to a 15-year low. In other words, the number of people who are looking for work has gone down by a bigger amount. So there are people out there who are unemployed and who recognise that we are in the middle of a deep recession. In Australia, the first recession in 30 years. They know that they're unlikely to go out and find work in the next month, perhaps because of their skill set or their mindset or just even taking this as an opportunity to have a little bit of a sabbatical or a career pause. Those people are not counted in unemployment numbers. Australia's unemployment numbers only share people who are actively looking for work. And so people who ostensibly have dropped out of the workforce, even if that's temporary, are not counted. Greg Jericho from The Guardian did some detailed investigation into this, and he identified that if we included those people, the people who would like a job, who had a job several months ago, but are not currently actively searching for a job, then Australia's unemployment rate wouldn't be 6.2%, it would be 9.7%, would actually be higher than some of the economic forecasts. Also relevant to note, is that Australia's figures do not include people who are on the Job Keeper program. The Job Keeper program, similar to uh, what the UK are doing around the furlough uh, that the, the government has implemented there, they're designed to put unemployment style welfare into people while maintaining their job. It's a little bit different between those two countries. In the UK, you have to get stood down, be put on furlough, and the government will pay 80% of your salary up to a certain level, but you stay employed. In Australia, which I think is a slightly more sensible approach, you actually keep your job. 
you keep working if there's work for you to do, and the government will underwrite your salary to the level of $1,500 Australian per fortnight. Now, what that means for the government is that they don't have a whole lot of people who are suddenly unemployed. You don't have a whole lot of business owners who say, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to have work or afford this staff next month, so I'm going to lay them off or I'm going to, to stand them down. The government, by giving that JobKeeper payment, keeps the employers employing those people, keeps those people officially in jobs, even if they're only making the government stimulus JobKeeper package. It's really unclear and, and perhaps we will never quite know how many people who are on JobKeeper would otherwise be unemployed. Anecdotally, I know from my business networks that there are certainly a percentage. And the reality is that because I'm business advisor, I work with successful, fast-growing businesses, my network tends to be slightly more successful, slightly more uh, resilient to these kind of shocks than the average business. So I would suggest overall in the economy, a larger number than I'm encountering. Uh, individuals who would otherwise be unemployed if it were not for the JobKeeper payment. And those figures aren't included here either. So if we take people who have dropped out of the labour force, the lower participation rate, if we add in the hypothetically, the unknown, but the people who still have jobs solely because of JobKeeper, government welfare, but aren't counted as unemployment, then it's fair to say Australia's unemployment rate for April would have gone over 10%, a 10% milestone. And Treasury forecasts in Australia still suggest that we will officially get to 10%. Again, you can keep digging deeper. Uh, other figures that were released, the underemployment rate rose to 13.7%. So that's people who maybe have some work, but not enough. That's going to include some of those people on reduced hours with JobKeeper, so 13.7%. Uh, Underutilisation, uh, is an all-time high of 19.9%. Uh, monthly hours worked across all jobs fell. So even those people who have jobs and are therefore not unemployed are not necessarily getting enough work. Uh, that is partly an ongoing trend towards a casualisation and an uberization of the workforce, uh, which will have consequences as we come out of this recession. The US has put forward some stimulus packages to try and keep people in jobs to do a similar thing to what the Australian government has done. However, the amount of money that they have put and the way that that has been handled in the much more federalised system of 50 states, almost 50 different countries, all trying to implement it, just means that that has not had nearly the same effect. So the US unemployment rate, 14.7%, uh, that's an extraordinary jump in a single month, uh, something like 10 times the highest monthly jump previously seen. Australia may look like it's doing better, being only 6.2%. When you dig into the numbers and you look at the stimulus packages, that unemployment rate is probably more likely to be 10% or more. We're also starting to see uh, GDP figures. GDP figures being very much towards the end of the lagging indicator. So these are the figures for the March quarter. Here we are in May. Australia won't even give us the March quarter GDP figures until the first week of June. So it's very much a historic but we can see there the UK economy shrunk, contracted by 2% for the quarter. That was off the back of a flat December quarter. Uh, so not quite two consecutive quarters of negative growth because 0.0% is still not negative. It's not positive, but it's not negative. Uh, the US, negative uh, 4.8%. Uh, and undoubtedly, the US is getting 
impacted more deeply by the coronavirus recession, and that is showing in, in that figure. Uh, I don't think there's any dispute now that all three of those countries listed and many, many more are going into a recession. Again, next week, we're going to jump in. We're going to have uh, some more charts and those kind of things. If you would like to see more countries as a result of the fact that I will have a little bit more space on the slide, a little bit more time in the, the TV show, uh, if you want to see more countries, your country, let me know. I'm more than happy to go back and add their data from the last uh, two months that we've been running. Don't waste a good recession. So that's the economic snapshot for this week. Here are your business priorities for this coming week. Week commencing 17th of May, 2020. I'm not going to go into detail on each of these because we have actually covered them in previous videos. And if you're watching this on jacobaldridge.com or on YouTube, we'll put up some links to the specific chapters of those previous presentations where we talk about each of these. In many countries around the world, lockdown is beginning to end. In some countries, like Hong Kong, it has already ended. Uh, here where I am in Australia, I can now, by the time you're watching this, officially go to a cafe, sit down and have a coffee again. Hallelujah. I'm actually surprised that lockdown restrictions are also being eased in the UK and the US. When we have a look at those numbers about active cases still growing in those countries, However, there is definitely political pressure. And when we get into why the coronavirus recession is different, we're going to talk a little bit about the effect. You can turn off the lockdown rules. That doesn't necessarily mean that people will open up the economy. But for your business, as lockdown ends, what is it that you need to do to prepare? And again, if you have been following every week, you may have already done many of these things. It's just a matter of reviewing them for the reality of what the next week, the next month is going to look like for you. So reviewing your cash flow forecasts. Was the impact of the respond phase as deep as you expected? Was it not? Was it perhaps, as I've seen with some businesses who really expected to see revenue drop by 20, 30% and are actually having record months? And that's why we put in that cash flow forecast very, very early on, that potential upside just in case. So review the cash flow forecasts and the decisions you had to make if you hit certain levels. Talk to your war cabinet. This is now your expanded war cabinet that we discussed last week, particularly those advisors with recession experience so that you don't get ahead of yourself. And similarly, you don't get caught behind. Call your clients again. Hopefully you've been keeping in touch with your existing clients, your alumni clients, perhaps some prospects that were floating around when the coronavirus recession started. Calling them again, and I use the word calling quite deliberately to talk about getting on the phone, having those conversations. How are they going? If you're starting to come through this, are they in a similar point? If you're stuck, are they ahead? Are they behind learning that information, getting a feel for that, reminding them that you exist? Do you need to transform your product? Again, had a presentation going through exactly how to do that, how to identify that. Uh, the last point there, which is not a question mark, it's an exclamation point, is how have you transformed your sales process? So those are your priorities this week. If you haven't done any of them previously, possibly more than a week's worth going on, but that's the order that I would encourage you to do it. Review your cash flow forecasts, chat with your war cabinet, keep calling your clients, Ask yourself, do I need to transform my product right now? And ask yourself, 
what are the things that I'm definitely doing to transform my sales process. So how does a typical recession progress? What's the sequence of events that leads to an economic downturn and ultimately a full-blown recession? Every recession is different. However, there is a common sequence if you look through, as we're going to, centuries worth of economic data. If you can understand that typical style, then you can see how each recession differs, particularly how is the coronavirus recession different and what does that mean for your business? This is a slide that you've probably seen. I'm not going to go through it in as much detail as we have previously, but this is the simple ups and downs, boom and bust of an economic cycle. Importantly, this recognises the emotional impact that goes on through the cycle, from the excitement, the thrill, the euphoria of a boom, through to the anxiety, the denial, the fear that maybe has been going on for you, certainly has been going on for the wider economy over the last few months. And that's the respond phase of a recession, the first few months when things have changed and you need to rejig your business. You need to rejig your business at that point for the new normal of being in a recession. But don't get caught there because you also need to start asking yourself, well, what's the new normal on the other side of this recession? Once you've got through that respond phase, that's where you head into the plan phase. The plan phase is about, okay, well, what do I need to do to transform my business for that future, for that new normal? You don't necessarily execute those plans until you get to the bottom of the cycle. And you may notice a bit of a disconnect. I'm sitting there telling you to plan for the future, to be somewhat optimistic, while at the same time acknowledging that in the wider economy, the emotions are going to be of desperation, of panic, of despondency. It's important for you as a business owner and a business leader not to resist or to ignore your emotions. Indeed, if you feel those things, to reflect on those, to identify them, acknowledge them. However, don't get caught up in those. You have, and it is a burden at times, a responsibility to your team, to your family, to yourself, to keep your business going and growing. And that means using that optimism that you naturally have as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, to plan for the future, to keep your powder dry and ready to execute when we hit that bottom point, where there's the, the point of maximum opportunity and to benefit the most from the upswing maximum profit, maximum brand awareness, market share that you've created going through the recession. And a lot of people want the timeframes, when will the coronavirus recession end? The respond phase is normally about three months. So for many of us, we're starting to come out of that respond phase now. We are heading into the planning phase. The length of the plan phase depends on the shape of the recession. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later when we look at how the coronavirus recession is different. You may recall that I'm forecasting, along with many others, an L-shaped recession, one that lasts longer, which means that that execution point is not going to be in three or six months' time. It's likely to be the second half of 2021 at the earliest. Again, right at the end of this presentation, we're going to talk about what all of this means for your business. So that's the broad economic cycle. But what is it that actually triggers a recession? How do they start? How do they progress? How do we go from something through the butterfly effect into a full-blown recession that affects the wider economy? So what are the dominoes in this progression of a typical recession? Well, 
It normally starts with a sector, an industry that has some issues, has some challenges that causes the whole thing, sets off the trigger. That flows through to the banks, the finance, the liquidity, that has an impact on suppliers to that sector and working with those banks that then flows into the tertiary network. We get these multiplier effects out into the wider economy before we know it, we're all in this together. So sector X falls over and before we know it, the whole row of dominoes has come tumbling down. It's an interesting phenomena around recessions is that we know they happen fairly frequently. Once every seven to 10 years is the length of those economic cycles. And yet, despite knowing that they're going to happen, we do a terrible job of actually being able to forecast when and exactly why. And the reason is that sector X, that X for the unknown. You think about an analogy. If I'm driving a really fast car, incredibly fast down the motorway, doing 200 miles an hour, I have the pedal to the metal, and I'm going as fast as I can, it's fair to say that I'm probably going to crash at some point, perhaps even fairly soon. You know that there's a crash coming, but you don't necessarily know exactly what's going to cause the crash. Am I going to lose focus for a moment and smash into a guardrail? Am I going to pass a truck and get sucked under? Is a duck going to come flying in my open window or a goose come flying through my windscreen? Am I going to blow a tire? Is my transmission going to dump? I'm driving recklessly, an accident is imminent, but the exact cause of the accident is unpredictable. And it's the same for an economy in boom times. It is overheated, it's moving too fast. There's uh, some inefficiencies that have been built into the system by the bubble that is blowing up. We know that at some point that's going to burst, but exactly what causes it is unpredictable. And that is why, even though we know recessions are coming, Economists, the dismal scientists that they are, still do a terrible job of actually predicting the why and the specific timing of a recession. And even me, you know, I pat myself on the back for having prepared my clients and my viewers with recession videos from late 2018 onwards. But of course, I couldn't have foreseen that this recession would be caused by a global pandemic. I just knew that we were due that something would trigger off Sector X. So what are some of the examples? And again, when I talk about history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, I'm not pulling some of this information out of my bum. I'm not just talking about my experience through the Great Recession. As a student of economics, as a student of history, and as a student of business, going through and looking at causes of recessions going back centuries to see what they have in common and where they have their differences. Some information that came out of the UK forecasts this week is that the recession there could be the worst since 1706. So in terms of data, we've got a lot going back more than 300 years. So what was Sector X in 1706? Well, that was agriculture. We had through the 1700s, 1703 to 1709, we had a solar minimum. We had some of the coldest winters of the modern era, and that led to multiple consecutive crop failures. So in the UK and across Europe, agriculture set off the recession of the 1700s, 1706 to 1709. Uh, 1789 was something completely different. It was actually copper debasement in the US. Uh, 
coins, which were the main form of currency, were made out of copper. Different states started to put different amounts of copper. The volume of copper available in the market started to go up, so the value of copper started to decrease, and therefore people started to fear the value of coins, particularly those from us. You can kind of start to get a feel as you go through these that predicting exactly which sector is going to trigger an inflated economy to explode is difficult to do when it's something as simple or unpredictable as the amount of copper in coins in a different state to yours. 1857, which was the first global recession, that was really triggered by railroads, the inflation that had gone on, the over-speculation railroads in the US, uh, and that tripped, that fell, that caused collapses. Uh, in Ohio, in New York, and then flowed through to the rest of the developed world, such as it was in 1857. 1893, another big global depression. Uh, that was triggered by real estate speculation. As far afield as Argentina, as Australia, these things were starting to have an impact on American investors, speculators, and in the UK. Uh, 1929 was a little bit different in that the causes are much debated. Uh, it's generally appreciated that what happened there was indeed an overheated stock market, but that was investors across a range of sectors that were just getting too exuberant, too optimistic. And so when that crashed, it crashed hard. And then you also had much faster spread of news in 1929 compared to, say, 1857 or 1706. And that caused the panic to be deeper uh, and to spread much faster, caused deflation set off what we know as the Great Depression. Other sectors within perhaps living memory, uh, the 1970s, we had a couple of recessions, a double dip recession through into the 1980s, that was largely oil. 1990 was real estate and oil, the 2000 was the dot-com bust, uh, impacted in part by September 11. Uh, 2008 was a very, very different recession in that it was actually bank-led. So normally, as you see, a sector goes under, a sector has challenges, and that has an immediate flow and effect to the banks. 2008 recession, the Great Recession, GFC, was different because it was actually the banks that were the sector. We skipped that first domino entirely. It was the banks that fell over. 2020, of course, what's the cause? It's the coronavirus pandemic. But again, it's not that a single one of those had a wide-reaching impact on the economy on its own. The economy in all of those instances was already fragile, was already at the peak of its boom, was already that car driving too fast down the freeway when something happened that set off the accident that they weren't able to control. So recessions are caused by sector X, whatever that might be. The next domino to fall then is the banks. And by banks, I really mean finance, liquidity, availability of cash in general. So that first hits those banks that are exposed to that sector. But people who, especially since the 20th century, making money by speculating, by looking at what the future holds, they start to see that we're having an issue in banks in terms of wider liquidity in the economy. So they start to forecast that we're heading for a downturn or we're heading for a recession. Stock markets being that lead indicator start to drop in advance of that actual wider recession. Again, this is a typical recession progression. The speculators, the investors can see that, okay, we're having issues around oil. That's probably going to flow into the wider economy. Therefore, growth prospects for the wider economy are down. Therefore, I'm going to sell or I'm only going to pay a lower amount for the shares for investments in the wider economy. 
And that's why typically the share market is about a six month, somewhere between three and 12, about a six month lead indicator of the wider economy. Because people who are investing today are speculating on the future. When they have some consensus, it's normally because there's enough data that things are happening, that sector X has collapsed, that banks are starting to struggle. And there's also a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that if 90% of people think a recession is coming and are behaving accordingly, they're probably going to cause a recession, even if it may have been avoided. So sector X collapses. The banks at first that are exposed to that sector start to have liquidity issues. Other banks, because banks are all interconnected, start to have liquidity issues. We also start to see a fallout in the general economy. Any suppliers that are going into sector X. So if you think about a mining crash, mining sector looks after a lot of businesses over and above the actual mining that gets done. So if commodity prices collapse, if oil prices collapse, it's not just those who are mining those commodities that are impacted, it's all of the suppliers that are going into that. It's all the companies that need that bank finance that is now suddenly not available because banks are being cautious or have collapsed. And there's also a geographic element to that suppliers, that flow on effect into the dominoes in that mining is another good example where you may have a whole geographic area that is highly dependent on a mine, a series of mines on commodity prices. And so as that first domino falls, they fall fairly shortly thereafter. And we start to then get the wider effect. It's certainly possible that in some economic downturns, they stay as sector specific. In other words, those first three dominoes fall, but they don't make the connection to the fourth. Now, mining might have a downturn, a specific commodity might go under, some banks are exposed, there are some issues, definitely some suppliers or some geographic regions are impacted, but it doesn't have that wider effect. To really trigger a recession, we need that fourth domino to fall, and that's now the tertiary network. So this is now the wider impact of just that sector. So the downturn starts to spread into other sectors, other communities, other asset classes. Commodities goes down, that impacts stocks, it starts to impact stocks in other sectors, and that starts to have an impact on real estate, on gold, whatever it might be. We start to get the tertiary impact of sector X having a downturn. Once that wider downturn starts to spread, spending across the economy slows or in a worst case scenario stops. And it stops across multiple industries. It's not just that miners aren't investing in new mines, it's that people aren't now investing in new banks, people aren't opening their businesses. And what typically happens in a recession is that that's top down. It tends to be the largest companies that slow their spending first, which then means the mid-tier companies who are often supplying into those large companies, they start to experience a downturn and it flows down through them into their clients, their suppliers, and the entire supply chain through that tertiary network starts to have a crunch, starts to have a slowdown. At this point, we could be having either or both of a demand side or a supply side issue. Demand side, which is the most common in a recession, is when that spending slows, people are spending less, they're demanding less, because they're buying less, then there's less money circulating in the economy. A supply side issue happens when businesses shut down or slow down to the point where they can't actually supply the demand that still does exist. This is much rarer 
and it tends to trigger a longer recession because demand can pick up and if there's still goods to buy, then the economy can pick up faster. If demand picks up, but there isn't that supply that takes time to actually build that up again, you get a longer lag, you get a longer recession. Now, once a recession hits that tertiary network, that's when government intervention tends to start. Now, government intervention is largely a creation of the 20th century, and specifically the late 20th century. The general consensus is that the Great Depression was deepened and lengthened by a lack of government intervention. And certainly prior to the 1920s, there was not that central infrastructure to record the data, to see these things happening in real time, and to actually uh, have the money at a government level to spend on stimulus packages and so on. What we see now, and we've certainly seen through the coronavirus recession, is governments much more willing to jump in at this level. The reason why governments jump in as soon as that tertiary network starts to get exposed is that they want to cut off ideally, or at the very least restrict the negative multiplier effects, the way a recession starts to spiral into the wider economy. And one of the impacts of government intervention is that it creates zombie businesses, potentially even whole zombie sectors. So these are businesses that are propped up by the government intervention that are the walking dead. As soon as that intervention stops, they're going to be gone, they're dead. In many cases, they don't even know it yet. The negative multiplier effects are once that tertiary network starts to go into a recession and the fallout of that starts to flow through. So this is the point at which unemployment generally starts to increase. Again, unemployment being a lag indicator, especially when it's reported. Sector X may have collapsed several months ago. It's only now that the tertiary network is having an effect that we start to see unemployment. There's that great line that's attributed variously to Harry Truman, President Ronald Reagan, uh, that a recession is when your neighbour loses his job, a depression is when you lose yours. The unemployment starts to have a real effect when it becomes official. It's amazing how many people will panic this week because of those official recession uh, unemployment numbers that have come out. Uh, when they heard that people were probably losing their jobs, they were keeping an eye on things, but it was only once they saw 14.7% unemployment, they went, oh, this is real. And, and I'm going to change my behaviour accordingly. So this is how these effects multiply. Unemployment increases, it becomes official, people start to respond to unemployment numbers. And of course, for those where relevant to being unemployed, having a family member unemployed. Business confidence starts to decrease, consumer confidence starts to decrease. Consumer confidence is often one of the slowest things to happen in a recession because people assume somewhat optimistically that they'll be fine, that these things are happening off and away from them that won't impact them. It's only once they start to see these negative multiplier effects all around them in the economy that they start to get worried, they start to get cautious. Confidence goes down, there's less spending, less optimism that creates some of that demand side recession element and creates a downward spiral. Um, one of the impacts, interestingly enough, of uh, those multiplier effects of a recession is that fewer people die. For a typical recession, death rates go down. Now, overall, if you look at the, the, the overall history of an economy, growth helps extend longevity. Uh, however, specifically during a recession, the actual rate of death goes down. And this is you know, a few different factors, things like uh, 
fewer people are driving, so there's less car accidents. Uh, there's far fewer workplace deaths if there's far fewer people actually working. Uh, other things like uh, alcohol, drug use, some of these kind of behaviours can dwindle. People buy fewer drugs when they have less money, therefore fewer drug overdoses. Uh, and so one of the perverse and unexpected things of a recession is that it can actually help extend uh, life uh, projections, uh, you know, longevity. Uh, it's certainly not universal. Uh, there are some sectors, uh, some indicators that increase. Uh, suicide is one of the most obvious and um, you know, perhaps the, uh, the most unfortunate impact of a recession is the volume of suicides that increase. During uh, the coronavirus recession here in Australia, because we've largely been spared, at time of recording, we have fewer than 100 coronavirus deaths. There are estimates that the economic impact will lead to between 750 and 1,500 extra suicides. So uh, for this specific uh, recession, more people in Australia are expected to die of suicide from the economic fallout than they will from the actual coronavirus that caused the pandemic. Uh, however, you know, increase in suicides is typically offset by decreases in a lot of other areas. And, uh, and it can be quite interesting. I read a great article of some research out of the UK that suggested the lockdown of the coronavirus recession could actually make a permanent dent in HIV. The spread of HIV, uh, which is already slowing, um, but people are most contagious with HIV in the month after they contract it. So having a lockdown where fewer people are out and about, there's fewer um, you know, new sexual partners being created, uh, they think this could actually have a permanent dent on the spread of HIV, which while it's not the death sentence it used to be, is still a disease that uh, you know, is somewhat preventable, is treatable, um, but is certainly not, uh, you know, there's no vaccine for it. It, it can still kill people. Uh, and so that would be an incredibly positive outcome of a recession. So not all of the multiplier effects are negative. Uh, one of the scariest from a broader macroeconomic perspective of the negative multiplier effects is deflation. So we are mostly familiar with inflation where the costs of good rise over time in your business, you put your prices up, not necessarily every year, although uh, I encourage many of my clients to ask themselves that question at least annually. Deflation is when things start to go backwards. You can now charge less for your services, uh, which has a, a massive impact often on your profit margins, especially if your team are on the same salaries, if a lot of your other fixed costs haven't changed. Uh, of course, the wider impact of that deflation is that it can spiral down. If you're uh, having to charge less for your product or services, you're going to have a conversation with all of your suppliers, with your landlord uh, and with your team about possibly paying them less. Uh, and that's how deflation can spread in the economy. The very uh, largest risk of deflation is what impact that has on demand side spending. Inflation, the reason why central banks and governments like inflation to sit at that 2 to 3% level, which is a guide in most developed countries, is that inflation devalues cash, devalues savings. If something is going to cost you $100 today, it's going to cost you $105 next year, you're more likely to buy it today which means you're going to spend money today. Spending money stimulates the economy. Everything you spend goes into somebody else's paycheck. In a deflationary environment, that situation is reversed. Are you going to pay $100 for something today that's going to be $95 next year? 
possibly not, especially if it's a discretionary purchase. And so deflation means people stop spending. The value of cash starts to increase, even if you're not getting a, a decent return on your savings account, uh, and interest rates, of course, are at an all-time low, the fact that your dollar is worth more next year means that you're better off saving it, not spending it. And if you're not spending it, then you're not stimulating the economy and the deflationary impact kicks in. One of the reasons why government stimulus packages are designed to try and flood the economy with cash, whether that's quantitative easing, whether that's stimulus packages, whether that's lowering interest rates so that people have more money to spend. So they want you spending. They want that inflation staying steady or continuing to grow. So those are the negative multiplier effects. At this point, what started as a fallout of downturn in a specific sector is now community-wide. To coin a phrase that you've probably seen in a few emails, we're all in this together, and that recession is no longer a sector-specific downturn, it is a wider recession. And so that is how a typical recession starts and progresses. Sector that flows through the banks, flows through to their suppliers, and then triggers it, starts to have a tertiary impact on other networks, other sectors, other geographies, that then leads to negative multiplier effects through uh, the impact of demand, confidence, of unemployment, until finally we find ourselves in a recession and uh, we're all in it together. How does a recession end? Well, typically, recessions start to end when Sector X gets their stuff together. So they bottom out. Um, there's a broad principle, first in, first out. Those sectors that start the recession are often the first out of the recession, and it flows through. Uh, it also requires wider inefficiencies in the economy to be cleansed. So remember, a recession doesn't occur just because one sector got out of control. A recession occurs because the whole economy is going too fast, has built in too many inefficiencies. And those inefficiencies need to be washed out before the whole economy can go into a recovery phase. As I want to say, uh, combining a couple of different Warren Buffett quotes, uh, you know, when the economy is going up, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. It's only when the tide goes out that we see who's been swimming with no clothes on. And that's what we need to see to truly get through a recession. Those zombie businesses that maybe were being propped up by the government or being propped up by over-optimism in the general market finally get their heads chopped off. And the broader economy benefits from that overall. That's why it was such a problem for the Australian economy that we haven't had a recession in 30 years. Even though in the short term, that is a good thing, fewer people losing their jobs, fewer businesses closing down. The reality is it means we haven't had some of those efficiencies forced upon us that we need. That's part of the reason why to take a rough crude indicator, uh, but the ASX, the Australian stock market, has not grown over the last decade at nearly the rate of the American indices because we didn't have the severe recession that uh, the Great Recession caused, the double dip recession in the United States. And as a result, we didn't fix some of those things that need fixing. Australia may in some ways be the lucky country again in the coronavirus recession. That could set us up to continue to be the unlucky country in actually lopping the heads of those sectors, businesses that need it. So that's how a typical recession progresses. 
We jump into the next session. We're going to have a look at the coronavirus recession. How does that differ? This is not a typical recession. As I say, every recession is different. However, we know how a typical recession progresses, which we've just discussed in the first part of this presentation, then we can compare how each specific recession differs and use those differences to understand what's going to happen through the recession. And importantly, what this means for your business. What do you need to do to prepare for to come out successfully on the other side? So there are the dominoes of how a typical recession progresses. A specific sector, which varies, has a downturn that flows through to banks, suppliers, and so on. How is the coronavirus recession different? Well, the sector that had the most impact, that has been hardest hit, is not something like mining, agriculture. It's not one of those primary industries. It's things like hospitality, tourism, travel, and the supply chain. Now, these are normally the industries that get hit much later in the recession. It's normally when we have the negative multiplier effects of rising unemployment, of decreasing business and consumer confidence, that services like hospitality and tourism start to take a hit. So they have happened at the front and they have not been alone. Uh, in the US, we now have more than 30 million new people unemployed, unemployment rate over 14.7%. Uh, that isn't uniform. In some pockets, it's much worse than others. Uh, the state of Georgia in the US has been the hardest hit, something like a 5,000% increase on new unemployment claims between March and May of 2020. So the first way that the coronavirus recession is different is that it's faster. It's happening much faster and much more broadly across the whole economy. We're all in this together. I joked when I talked about a typical recession, how it gets to that point where we're in an official recession in the wider economy, uh, and we look around and we see that everybody's going through it. We're all in this together. And I joked about how many times you've heard that on a television commercial. You've seen that in a boring email that's been going on from someone who really means we're all in this together to mean, uh, but keep buying my services, please. Again, that often happens towards the end of the dominoes. It normally takes all of these dominoes falling, a slow moving cycle before we get to the point where we're all in this together. I talked about how the stock market is normally quite a, a good lead indicator on average six months ahead of the wider economy because it is forecasters, speculators, investors seeing what's happening in the future, spending money today based on future returns, giving us that indicator. The speed with which the coronavirus recession has happened means that that lead indicator wasn't able to be fast enough because we're all in this together sooner. And because we're all in this together, it is much bigger than a typical recession. It's faster and it's bigger. Banks, uh, small perhaps in the wider scheme of things, but worth noting, uh, interest rates were already at record lows. Uh, in a macroeconomic sense, in terms of some of the bigger trends we're going to talk about uh, towards the end of this section of the presentation, that's because we haven't actually got to the full end of the boom of this macroeconomic bull cycle. However, in the specific terms of this uh, smaller cycle, we didn't get to a point where interest rates went up, 
that means that there are fewer tools in federal reserves, in broader terms, government, uh, the fewer tools in the arsenal to deal with this. If you've got fewer tools to deal with the recession, that means it's going to drag on, it's going to be longer. And there are uh, other elements at play, things like the casualization of the workforce, uh, things like growing economic inequality, uh, how much they are different in this recession, what impact that has on the length of the recession, time will tell. Fourth factor is that this is going to be a supply side recession. I'm going to be mum and dad economics. I don't want to get overly technical with you. But I think this is an important thing to note uh, because this recession is going to be different. Most recessions are demand side, which means that as the recession heads into the tertiary network, the negative multiplier effects, people spend less, businesses spend less, there's less demand. The supply is still there. If I want to go and buy two coffees tomorrow instead of one, my barista can still make it. If I want to uh, order an extra shipment from my manufacturer in China next month, I can. They can still supply it, which means that the recession is caused by demand. It dries. It slows down. Demand picks up. Those zombies get washed out of the economy. The supply is still there to pick it up. This recession is different because it's not just the demand that's being impacted, it is also the ability of supply. I can't go and throw my daughter a birthday party anywhere in Australia right now. There is no place in this country of 25 million people that could supply that to me, even if I had the demand, even if I had the desire to get 40 of my nearest and dearest together to throw that party. So even if the demand was there, the supply would not be. So things that impact supply side, um, absolutely the lockdown. Uh, when people aren't working, they're not able to produce goods and services. Uh, you know, I can't spend money on a service that's not available. When businesses close or restrict their hours, they have less supply. So we might think of supply side in terms of widgets manufacturing, but it also applies to services. Now, how much of the supply side is artificial. And this is what the optimists are, are saying, the people who are still predicting a V-shaped quick bounce back recession. They're saying, look, the recession we're having right now in terms of the supply side and the demand side is artificial. It's been caused by the lockdown response to the pandemic. Some of that official by government, some of that just what people are doing for their own health and safety. That as soon as that stops, uh, then the economy will bounce back. The reality is the economy is not a light bulb. You can't just turn it off and turn it on again. The economy is a freight train. It takes a while to slow down, which means that there are some businesses that are still doing well that may think that they're gonna ride this out, but they're actually just slowing because they're not looking at the lead indicators in their business. Uh, and getting a freight train rolling again is not a rapid process. So the supply side is not going to stop even if governments cancel all the lockdown restrictions overnight. Uh, the health crisis isn't going to end just because we're allowed to go and have a birthday party. Are you still gonna to go to the football with 40,000 of your nearest and dearest if you're allowed to? That's a demand side thing. Are you going to go to work if it means sitting with people who may contract this deadly disease that there's no vaccine and no cure for? If you're not gonna to go to work other people aren't going to go, then there's going to be less of that supply. Now, the longer the actual health crisis drags on, 
the more we're going to see irreversible supply side impact. Some businesses already are gone forever. Many of those sailed into these stormy seas in a leaky boat. And so it was really fast tracking the inevitable. However, once gone, they're not coming back. And in a recession, even though businesses look for new opportunities and many businesses start in a recession, they're not necessarily going to rapidly plug some of those gaps, especially if they were gaps being created by businesses that were unsustainable. The businesses is gone forever and it's likely not going to be replaced like for like in a hurry. Other jobs are simply not going to come back. Businesses that are being forced to work on reduced capacity are suddenly learning that they can get away with that. And that might be things like automation that may just be realising that they had a lot of excess capacity, that they had team members that were swimming with no clothes on. I spoke to a colleague of mine, a fellow business advisor, uh, and one client of his uh, immediately furloughed, this is in the UK, 50% of their staff. Now, of course, he didn't furlough the best 50% of his staff, and nor would you. So he found himself operating with half the workforce. Orders have gone down. He has actually been affected by the recession. But productivity has gone up enormously. The overall profit of the business, and these are some projections and forecasts in the early days, but the profitability of the business has increased. The volume of net profit is down, but as a percentage of overall revenue, it's up enormously because of the extra productivity and efficiency he's getting by having half of his workforce who are the best half. Now, he has a decision to make. Do I want to make more money or am I quite happy running a smaller but much easier business and making that money? Or, which will happen as the recession ends and as he goes into that natural entrepreneurial instinct, how do I grow while maintaining that new productivity percentage? How do I get back to that net profit dollar amount with fewer people? Or if I get my revenue back to where it was, how do I enjoy, reinvest or spend the greater net profit amount that I'm getting because of the productivity gains? Whichever decisions that business owner makes, a large chunk of those furloughed staff who remember are currently employed under UK unemployment numbers, they're not coming back. There will be redundancies. And that's one anecdotal example of something that is happening in a lot of businesses around the world, forced or discovered that there are jobs that they don't need. Those jobs aren't coming back. Some of that is going to impact demand. Some of that will impact supply if businesses decide to stay smaller because it's much, much easier. One of the things that is going to perhaps be most impacted by supply side recession, uh, there in the name, is the supply chains. And in particular, the global just-in-time supply chain network that many businesses, that many of us rely on without even realizing it. So, you know, uh, for those who aren't familiar with just in time, you know, the idea is that I don't need to hold a whole lot of stock or inventory if I can get it delivered just in time. If I'm going to go out and install microwaves tomorrow, I don't need months worth of microwaves sitting in my warehouse. If I get them delivered, uh, today, go and install them tomorrow. That helps my cash flow. Uh, it helps my business. What they've seen, of course, is that those microwaves are coming in from China and they show up two weeks, three weeks late. That has a massive impact on those businesses. Uh, so supply chain coming through the recession and particularly coming out the other side is going to have a, a big impact. If the factory in China 
isn't manufacturing those uh, widgets, whatever they are, then the assembly plant in Wichita can't value add, putting them all together, then the wind farm in Quebec can't install those, then the construction uh, site that was going to be built, powered by those wind farms can't progress, then the plumbers, the electricians, they don't have work this month, and that has a flow on effect to the restaurants in their community. The old saying was that if America sneezes, the world would catch a cold. In terms of supply chain networks, they really largely start in China, uh, which of course is also where the coronavirus uh, appears to have begun, the COVID-19 coronavirus, uh, very much metaphorically and literally when China sneezes, the world catches a cold. So all of those supply chains are going to be rethought. People are going to start valuing local manufacturing higher. Will they value it enough to really develop local manufacturing? Time will tell. Uh, certainly, if they're going to have to start stocking inventory rather than relying on just-in-time, that's going to impact their cash flow. It's going to impact their prices and or their profitability. All of those things mean that the supply chains we took for granted three months ago no longer exist in the same form. Supply-side recession partly is when those supply chains can't provide what we want, when we want it, when we demand it. It's one of the reasons why this will be a supply side recession. Uh, interesting side effect of a supply uh, side recession, particularly when coupled with uh, government stimulus packages, is that, that often creates inflation. So we talked in the typical recession about how we can end up with deflation. Combination of supply side recession and government stimulus can create inflation because demand starts to outstrip supply. I was chatting to my brother recently. Uh, he's just bought a new uh, fancy camera uh, because he's doing a lot more broadcasting from his studio for his clients. Uh, took ages for him to be able to get one. Australia ran out of the specific camera he wanted. It was a $200 item. He saw one on eBay for $400. He offered $250. He thought it'd be a, a little bit sneaky, jump in, uh, offered $250, which is still you know, a 25% markup on what uh, the retail price ought to be. Uh, and thankfully got a response from the guy who went, mate, you're dreaming. I sold it for $400 in 30 minutes. Specific example of supply wasn't there, demand while lower still existed, massive inflation, $200 product becomes a $400 product. And someone was on eBay trying to flog one for $1,500 to really test just how high that inflation could be. Um, parts of that are good news. If you can still keep supplying, if inflation's going up, that's good for your business. As long as it doesn't get out of control, we don't end up with runaway inflation because that can then lead to a whole other kettle of fish in terms of what uh, governments need to do to keep inflation under control, higher interest rates and those kind of things. A few other factors that are uh, different about the coronavirus recession uh, and particularly supply side, demand side. Uh, the longer lockdown goes on, the more habits are formed. The more people are happy to do business meetings over Zoom, the less they're going to jump in a car uh, and, uh, and use petrol, use uh, the car, uh, use Uber, uh, taxi services, all of those kind of things. Uh, so that's going to affect demand and supply in some economies, in some industries. Uh, and there may be wider consequences of the lockdown uh, in terms of how the coronavirus recession will be different. Important thing to note, Supply-side recessions, coronavirus recession will be one of those, are not V-shaped. Again, people who are predicting a bounce back are not looking at 
the wider impact that this recession is having. Will we bounce back when active cases start to decline as they have in Australia as they are starting to slow down around the world? Uh, when the lockdown ends, are we going to bounce back? Is supply and demand going to pick up again? No. Let's jump into the shape of those recessions. I want to really reinforce this because it's an important point that a lot of um, a lot of newspaper ink, uh, now more metaphorical in terms of online space, is going to be wasted on. Uh, is this a V-shaped recession? Is this an L-shaped recession? Uh, as we know, I've been forecasting an L-shaped recession. Many others have been doing it even before I was. Let's have a look at how being a supply-side recession creates that, how it impacts it. So if a V-shaped recession, which is a typical recession, a normal recession, a fast recession, demand slows, supply remains available. It may slow, but it never reduces below the level of demand. So that when demand recovers in that sector X and more widely, the supply is there, the economy bounces back, the businesses that have learned through that experience, that have transformed themselves, profit the most, but the general economy carries on. The L-shaped recession, the coronavirus recession, it's faster, it's bigger, it's longer, it's a supply-side recession in part. That means that we're not having the gentle slope of a V, we're having the much deeper, more sudden drop of an L. You can already see that. Uh, supply-side availability reduces. And investment in replacing that supply is diminished because, again, that self-fulfilling prophecy when a factory, someone who might want to invest in a new factory, can see that we're going to be in recession for another few years or going through the fallout of the recession for another few years, they're not going to build a factory right now. They're potentially going to wait until a slightly better time, which means that supply drops, businesses go out of business, employees are stood down, work fewer hours, lose jobs entirely. And what that means is that even when demand recovers, it still takes a little while for that supply chain, for the supply to really truly recover. And it means that the profit at the other side kicks in much later. A key difference between those two shapes, V-shaped recession, faster, bounces back, L-shaped recession, it's slower. If you're looking at that, uh, you may think, well, okay, well, I can profit by maintaining my supply uh, while my peers, my competitors are shut, are closed down or at diminished hours. But remember, this is a macroeconomic model. We're talking about all the dominoes of the economy. Uh, some of your customers won't have projects or jobs until that wider supply side recovers as well. Uh, it's an interconnected cyclical economy. So just because you can still sell things doesn't necessarily mean that your clients have the demand because they may be waiting for their customers. They may not have the supply or the demand that they need to recover fully. And that's part of why the freight train takes so long. All those different carriages coupled together, having to gain that momentum one by one to really pick us up. Time frames, because uh, it's the number one question I always get, how long will this recession last? Um, look, forecast. Uh, we started the respond phase, uh, Q1 2020, uh, roughly February, March 2020, a little bit later in some countries, depends on how you're affected by the pandemic. An L-shaped recession, typically 12 to 18 months through that planning phase. We hit the bottom, we bounce along the bottom. We're not, uh, we don't 
hit shrinking necessarily, but we're not growing, we're not picking up, we don't have that momentum until that execution point, which at this stage we're forecasting is going to be at or after July 2021. Now that's some of the things that we know about the coronavirus recession. What are the things that are unknown about this in terms of why the coronavirus recession is different? What are some of the things uh, that are, uh, shall we just say, known unknowns? Well, first, foremost, it's a pandemic. I mean, this is not something that was caused because uh, the Saudi Arabian government decided to flood the market with oil and we had an oil price collapse with a flow on effect into OPEC countries. That happened. It happened at about the same time. If that was the cause of this recession, we might be able to say, well, when you know uh, OPEC gets their act together, they go back to being a cartel that control the price uh, at an international sale of oil, then uh, you know, things will pick up and the wider economy uh, will benefit. Not the case. We are first and foremost being impacted by a pandemic that is out of control. Not necessarily out of control in the sense that you know, nothing's been done to manage the risk, but we don't have a vaccine, we don't have a cure, we don't even necessarily have reliable treatment for this pandemic. And that means that how long it carries on and how long the effect of the pandemic on our economy carries on is unknown. The key point that a lot of people talk about is, well, when we have a vaccine. Yes, it's one thing to, uh, you know, we can ease lockdown restrictions, particularly if active cases are diminishing, uh, you know, the economy can restart. The reality is that people aren't going to go to football games, even if they're allowed to, if the virus continues to spread with no vaccine and no cure. And in terms of unknown unknowns, here's a chart, the number of coronavirus vaccines we have successfully created throughout all human history. So coronavirus, the family, uh, causes at least a quarter of common colds every year. So this is not a new family of diseases to us. It's something that affects us. And you've probably heard that statement. There's no cure for the common cold. There's certainly no vaccine. This is not like a flu pandemic where we have vaccines for certain strains of flu. We may be able to modify and adjust those. Most of the modelling that was done on a pandemic-led recession, part of the research I've been doing that I'll be sharing uh, later on in the Don't Waste a Good Recession program, uh, a lot of that was done on another flu pandemic, uh, similar to the Spanish flu of 1918-1919. The assumptions were that we would have a vaccine within 12 months for the most part, because we could take the vaccines we'd created and modify them for a new strain of the flu. We can't take a coronavirus vaccine and adjust it for COVID-19 because we've never managed to actually create one of them. I don't want to be doom and gloom. I'm quite optimistic about the opportunity. And as always, I want to be a practical Methodist business advisor for your business. How do you cope in the world, even with these known unknowns and unknown unknowns? It's important to remember, one of the great unknowns is not only when will we have a vaccine, but if we can even create a vaccine. And if we can't, well, what does that mean for the wider economy, the new normal post the recession? Some other unknowns I won't go into in a lot of detail, but just put out there because they are different. Every recession is different. Some of the things that are different in this, the coronavirus recession, uh, it's mostly killing the elderly, which is to say that 
the greatest death rate is on people over the age of, well, the older you get, over the age of 65, over the age of 70, 80, uh, the likelihood that once contracted, you will die from COVID-19 increases enormously. The younger you are, it would appear at this point, the less likely you are to die or to have some of the long-term effects. Again, often uh, other, other diseases that an individual may have on an individual basis, it's a risky disease. Overall though, what that means is that a disease that kills mostly old people doesn't kill people who are still in the workforce. It's one of the big differences between uh, the coronavirus recession and the Spanish flu, although being post-war, the actual recessionary impact, if any of that, is unknown. Um, if the, the Spanish flu mostly killed people in their 20s, 30s and 40s, people in their prime working years, that has a massive impact on GDP. If you kill old people, it obviously has an impact on GDP. It obviously has a wider impact on uh, community and us as humans, uh, has less of a GDP impact. Exactly how that will flow out is unknown. Uh, we also have uh, easier mobility compared to uh, the 1918-19 Spanish flu and some of those age factors. Um, what that means, as opposed to previous pandemics, is that we're not necessarily going to see the beneficial impact of this pandemic on income inequality. The uh, most famous example of this, because it's the largest, is the Black Death, uh, roughly 1351, across most of Europe. So that killed, on average, about a third of the community across all ages. One of the consequences in some pockets, particularly the UK, of the Black Death, 1351, was the uh, end of or great reduction in the power of serfdom. So suddenly, because there were far fewer uh, farmers, labourers, workers around, uh, and still the same demand from on high, workers could demand fairer treatment, better rates, more freedoms. And so even though a third of the population died, for those who survived, the feudalistic income inequality was addressed and greatly improved. Today, it's not killing as many workers. It's certainly not going to kill a third of the global population, which is a relief. And we also have greater mobility. Uh, we may not be able to jump on planes and fly around the world for leisure, but absolutely, if you're in Topeka, Kansas, and you want to go to uh, Washington State because there's a whole lot of work there, it's much easier to do that now than it was during the Great Depression or in earlier recessions. What that means is that wherever uh, pockets of low, um, uh, you know, where there's a, a, a you know lower death, uh, higher death rates, meaning fewer workers meaning potentially that uh, there would create a, a supply-side inflation in terms of wages. So employers would need to pay employees more because there are fewer employees. Because people can move around, people can import, we're not going to see as much of that, I don't think. Um, how long can businesses survive at forced 50% capacity? So there's a lot of businesses, particularly in those hospitality, travel, tourism, uh, gyms, a lot of these sectors that have been locked down, they're going to start reopening. The reality is they're not going to reopen fully. Here in Queensland, Australia, where I am, uh, restaurants are going to be able to start from uh, the time you're watching this video from this week, having 10 people. Now, if you're a restaurant that normally seats 50 people and suddenly you're only allowed to have 10 what does that mean? Can you actually even operate on that with all of those overheads? Can you just reduce staff to a quarter, kitchen staff, cooking staff, supply, all of these kind of things? Um, 
So even reopening businesses doesn't necessarily mean they're going to survive. Uh, and of course, as we've touched on, what are the consequences going to be of businesses that are forced to operate with fewer staff? We're going to see a greater investment in automation, technologies that already existed actually being implemented, particularly in this SME space where most of you are, uh, things that you wouldn't have had a chance to consider or there wouldn't have been an economic benefit of implementing three months ago uh, may now be the tools that you need to allow your business to survive and thrive at the moment. Uh, and like the example that I shared, businesses with fewer staff that suddenly realise I can operate with half as many people or with 30% fewer staff. Uh, what impact is that going to have on the wider economy is unknown. Uh, and then lastly, as we come out of uh, the coronavirus recession, what are some of the paradigm shifts that are actually going to be sustained in the economy? This is the great unknown. There's an awful lot of people who talk about this is a new epoch, this is now uh, you know, conscious capitalism, uh, you know, Donald Trump being a trigger for a new world order, all of these kind of things. Um, frankly, most of them were saying that in 2008, 2009. I don't buy into this recession is going to suddenly transform the world enormously. We're going to be a rosy, happy place. Barack Obama said that the arc of history bends toward justice. He got uh, term limited and we replaced him with Donald Trump. I'm not entirely sure if the arc of history is as confident as Barack Obama was. And so that's where I think a lot of the optimism that's going on right now. People want things to change. People want climate change to be a benefit. They want uh, a whole lot of the things that we're seeing in the uh, environment to be improved for the long term. There's no data yet suggesting that will actually be the case long term. If that's important to you, if that's part of your mission, your business, absolutely go forth. Just don't assume that that's going to happen without you continuing to drive it. Uh, so some of the things that could be paradigm shifts, uh, work from home, is it going to happen more? We're going to see more homeschooling. Uh, local supplies and supply chains, local manufacturing might come back to a lot of developed countries that had outsourced it to China, to Bangladesh, to Taiwan. Are we going to see governments trying to support local manufacturing through more tariffs? Are we going to see a shift away from the free trade agreements that dominated the last quarter of the 20th century? Is remote work, are Zoom meetings going to become more common? How are these going to impact the wider economy? And how are they going to impact your business specifically? They're unknowns. They're questions to keep asking yourself, but don't get caught up in living too far in the future. What's the business you want to create? As I say, we're going to start as the economy and as the pandemic move into a new phase. Don't waste a good recession is going to move into a new phase of really helping you to ask yourself and implement some of those practical changes relevant to your business. Here's the final unknown around the coronavirus recession. If we look at macroeconomic trends, we may even say that it's somewhat known, that it is actually somewhat forecastable. Uh, this here is a stock chart, that's the Dow Jones. Uh, it looks not dissimilar to uh, the Dow Jones over the last, say, 10, 20, 100 years um, heading up to today. That's not. That is not a chart that ends in 2020. That is a chart that ends in October 1987. So if you were sitting there on Black Monday, 1987, the day that the Dow Jones fell by the largest percentage uh, still the record, largest single day percentage fall ever. 
and you might be looking at all of that growth and that sharp decline at the end and you might be going, how long is it going to take to recover? How are we ever going to get out of this? And if you were magically able to fast forward to today, that there is actually a stock market that goes through to March 2020 when I pulled that chart. And I have for your benefit circled in the corner there, the 1987 collapse that we saw. Uh, yes, it took a number of years for that indices, index uh, to get back to the previous level. Uh, it was not a, a downturn without consequences. It uh, revealed a lot of fragility in the economy that in part with the oil shock uh, led to the 1990 recession, um, which in and of itself was not an enormous recession, most memorable in Australia because it was the last one that we had and it was the one we had to have apparently. So if you were sitting there in 1987 thinking the world's gone off a cliff, how will this ever recover? How would you feel knowing that that's what the next 30 years could look like? And there are a lot of parallels between the 1987 L-shape and the 2020 coronavirus L-shape. Prior to the 1987 uh, downturn, the 1990 recession, we had a double-dip recession. We then went into 20 years of a bull market. We had a double-dip recession through the Great Recession, the global financial crisis, uh, and there were forecasters back then that said very, very clearly, we are going post this double dip recession, we are going to have another roughly 20 year enormous bull market. That doesn't mean we won't have a recession. There will be at some point in that a recession, but don't think that's the end of the world. That's just a little bit of overheating, a little bit of a dip before we go into the next massive growth phase, just like 1987 was. This is not my chart. It's a, a little bit of detail, a little bit more technical uh, than if I wanted to, to waste an enormous amount of time trying to build one, but it, it, it does share the actual point. Um, you can, can see, looking at that chart, so that's uh, the S&P index going back to 1925. You can see in red, periods of flat, where we have 10 to 15 year flat periods in the economy. And with the green arrows, we have these 15 to 20 year growth periods. And you can start to see a pattern through the Great Depression, which is that first red, we had a lengthy period of flat, uh, followed by an enormous jump. Lengthy period of flat, followed by an enormous jump. Lengthy period of flat was the 2000s. If you had put money into a basket of stocks, US stock market in 2000, just before the dot-com bust, uh, it would have taken you the better part of 10 years to actually deliver a real return on the value of those stocks. It was a flat period. The US economy has just ended its longest expansion phase ever. It broke a record that was uh, set during the previous green arrow. And all of those suggest in a macroeconomic space that we are at best halfway through this bull run. What does that mean for your business? It means that this recession is not a lengthy, long-term, flat period where nothing's going to happen. There is a big bull market on the other side of this. And that, like the dominoes, is going to flow through into your geography, your economy, your business, if you are ready to seize it. So my very last new point, wrapping it all up, we've seen how a typical recession progresses, how the coronavirus recession is different, 
the key question I always want you to ask yourself is what does this mean for my business? And here's what it means. When you shift from respond to plan, which many of you are doing right now, you need to plan to transform your business. The new normal post-recession is going to be different. You need to transform your business to be ready for it. You also need to hold your nerve through the L shape. We're not gonna have a quick bounce back if you transform too fast, if you spend too much money waiting for the wider economy to pick up, you will have done your dough before the economy is ready. You need to be flexible, you need to be anti-fragile, which means you need to set your business up to cope with volatility, to cope with the volatility that happens through an L-shaped recession. These are specific projects I'm working with my clients on, is how to make sure their business plans aren't these horseshit five-year plans, they're flexible, they're anti-fragile, they're ready to respond to what is going on right now and ready for that bull run that is going to show up that could be the most profitable period of their business life. If you've missed it, uh, these are the four areas you need to transform your client base, your product, your sales and marketing, and your team members. We've talked about those in uh, more detail in previous things. But when I say be ready to transform your business, that's what I mean. Be ready to hold your nerve through the emotion, through the emotion of this specific recession. And know that I am here. Don't waste a good recession. I am here to help you, to help your business, whether that's watching these, whether that's jumping into the Facebook group and asking questions, whether that's looking to engage with me personally, some of my peers around the world in your business specifically, to make sure that you don't dive in this recession. You don't just survive. You actually have the opportunity to go, what is happening? How does that apply to my business? And how do I make sure I don't waste a perfectly good recession?